this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Nobody pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Everyone, welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview Radio program that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks, and today Kirk is off, but we have a special guest on, so we will be talking more about the war between science and religion. Before we do that, I want to remind people that our website is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can find archived shows there. And if you like podcasts, you can find us on iTunes or on Double Twist. We also have a Facebook page, uh, Evidence for Faith. And do check out our Website ratiochristi.org. That's R A T I O, ratiochristi, C H R I S T I dot org. All right, not a lot going on in the world of uh, science and apologetics and things, so I don't have news items. And Kirk is off, so we don't have his Mythbusters, so we will jump right in with our guest. We're bringing back to Evidence for Faith, John Conforti. John, welcome back to Evidence for Faith. I'm glad to be here again, Keith. So it's fortunate that we had you queued up because Kirk wound up not being around, available today. And we've had two great weeks with you as a guest, discovering, discussing a couple of interesting historical events we talked about the Galileo affair and whether Galileo was really at war with the Christian church and, you know, did the mm-hmm. Christian church really try to stop his ideas from going forward? And right. then last week we looked at the Scopes trial, the monkey trial. Mm-hmm. Was it really this, the way it's described in the movies and the popular uh, opinion? So those were two great shows and if people want to get them they'll we'll be putting them up on the website very soon so john what we're going to do today we're going to continue on with that theme and you've been very kind to do some research on this whole topic of the war between science and religion and Mm -hmm. it's something that you hear all the time um we just recently heard it i think in one of the last rosho christie apologetics club meetings at Stockton College, uh, one of the students wanted to know, they wanted to hear about that that war because they thought it was real. They thought, you know, that science really and religion really are fighting each other. Well, I think that this is a, a, a general impression for the modern era, mainly because of some of the court battles that we've seen over um, evolution and creation which are so easily typified as being you know religion versus science when in fact most of that has to do with science versus science and um, tr- before the 19th century it's eminently demonstrable that if you had for instance said to Newton that science and religion are at war with each other he'd have looked at you like you had three heads you right. know the, all of these people um from Copernicus was Copernicus was a churchman. Right. Uh, Kepler was a churchman, mm-hmm. for, formulator of the uh, the the, uh, the laws of planetary motion. Uh, Newton was a devoted uh, theologian. He he wrote more. He wrote three times more about theology than he did about science. Right. Right. He was, he was big on um, eschatology, end time stuff. Eschatology. Yes. 
can't talk right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he, uh, he 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 wrote all kinds of stuff about that, and I do I do have to say though, with all due respect to uh, Sir Isaac, that I think he was a much better scientist than a theologian. <laughs> but the fact that that's a reading reprints of his work on Revelation, right? <laughs> no, no, not not particularly. But they still are reading the Prince uh, the Principia. Uh, but he. Um, yep. Principia. Uh, In fact, I just finished reading it last year. Yeah, it's it's a it's a magnificent, groundbreaking work, you know. And but he, he they definitely saw, uh, it, 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 well, the whole scientific enterprise grew up in the fertile soil of Christianity, and it did not develop. You, you notice there's a lot of other cultures where it sort of got a kickstart going, but right. you, it, it always collapsed, and there's reasons for that. You well, know, let's, but let's not jump too far forward. Too far ahead. Well, we'll get there. Yeah, let's let's talk about this war. Is there really a war of science, and what is it that people are told? What's the mythology out there? If I was to just stop somebody on the street and ask them, um, you know, is there a war between religion and science? What would they say, and what would they use as evidence to back this up? Well, again, I think the first the first thing they'd probably point to is, uh, like I said, the creation evolution debate that goes on. Uh, but they would say that religion has always been the superstition that has held back scientific progress. That it has always tried to stop science from progressing, and, and uh, this is uh, everything from having prohibitions against uh, making human cadaver. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's yes. from medical students using human cadavers, right? That's to, what I've heard. Uh, uh, absolutely not true. Uh, to um, you know, trying to imprison Galileo, which we addressed. You know, uh, uh, these whole type of things that, that that there is this long, long history of the church trying to uh, repress scientific knowledge, and um, absolutely not true. It's just. It, 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 this is a, a whole of the fabrication of the late 19th century, and there was there was actually a, a reason why it sort of took off as a popular theory it, at that point in time. But it's basically it's the the the, the brainchild of two men at, primarily at that point in time, and so we're like we you know we can name names. We actually know where. This idea really came from, right. and uh, in the scientific world, it came from two two particular men. One was a chemist John William Draper, um, and the other one w- was uh, American historian Andrew Dickinson White. And right. they both w- wrote books. Uh, the first one, uh, uh, Draper, was the first. Uh, president of the American Chemical Society, was born in England, emigrated to America, and he wrote a book called uh, A History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. And his work was grounded in the in the what was called positivism, by uh, which was formulated by August Comte. And what that theory stated was that history progresses through stages, particularly three stages. One is First, you start off at the theological or superstitious, which is the lowest form of society. Then, <laughs> of course, conveniently. Of course, conveniently, of course. Right. Then you move to the metaphysical stage of society. Then you move to the positive or scientific stage, which is the highest form of society. Now, in a society where um, a – Science is beginning and trying to establish itself as a legitimate uh, profession at the time. You got to, this is the first time that scientist, the word scientist, is formulated in the 19th century. Right. Prior to that, you know, if if you had if you had called Isaac Newton a scientist, he again he wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Um, yeah, it'd be like a a, a knowledger. Yeah, science was just thought, uh, used as uh, you know for a knowledge for a, yeah. an area of knowledge. It was called natural philosophy. Right. It, it, it was considered a branch of philosophy where mm-hmm. you engaged in studying the natural world, and so that's what it was called. It's called natural philosophy, and, it's, and in the 19th century, it, it began to break out on its own and was trying to establish its own identity. And um, so, 
this this idea that you know they had reached the pinnacle it goes with the arrogance of the gilded age of course you know that you know they had reached the pinnacle of human society that they were the scientific age and so that you know it was rather sweet music to their ears you know this whole idea but there isn't a single professional historian today that would ever be quite dead acknowledging that this was anywhere near legitimate okay so so so, so this was largely from the back then the what they would have called the new atheists right or i guess they wouldn't have called them that they would have called it the enlightenment um they did call it the enlightenment right off the bat so it was enlightenment atheists uh who were who were feeling confident it was post newtonian uh, Newton actually, in, in fact, in Principia, he, he he talks about the atheists and and how they criticized his theory of gravity because it was occultic. It was a it was a dark science and too much like God uh, mm-hmm. for them. So they they didn't want to accept the theory of gravity. But uh, let's also address the fact that this was also a little bit had to do with the Reformation. It had to do with uh, some Protestants wanting to. Uh, reject Catholicism, wanting to poo-poo everything Catholic. Yes, Draper was an ardent anti-Catholic. He um, he he calls he calls Protestantism the twin sister of science, okay. and he, he he called Islam the Southern Reformation. Uh, oh, interesting. So I mean, he even saw Islam as being. Uh, more more Christian than than Catholicism, he was an ardent anti-Catholic, and he he's probably the first one and only one to ever blame the Catholic Church for a lack of adequate population in England. Um, he he so, he somehow had this idea that that populations should double. There was a law of population that it should double every twenty five years. And that from 1066 to 1566, 500 years, the population of England had barely doubled. And he wrote that, you know, that this was due to famine, disease, war, and a celibate clergy. Uh, all of, all of these things were the Pope's fault. Interesting. Yeah. And so the thing is, actually, if you do the math, over 500 years, this law would have given, uh, starting with the 2 million population figure that he gives for England in 1066, if it hadn't been for the suppression, quote-unquote, of the, of the Pope, um, the population in 1566 of England would have been 2 trillion, which would be about 350 times the current population of the planet. <laughs> Um, you know, so I don't think he actually did the math working no. out on that one. <laughs> Probably not. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's strange, wacko things like this that if you really get into Draper's work, it is just really laughable. I mean, uh, it's, you have to really snicker at it in, in some ways, you know, that, you know, he, he quotes things completely out of context. Um, he, he puts things 180 degrees to sometimes what, People actually said by selectively quoting things, and and he is writing very much in a reaction to the Catholic. And he's, he's in America, and he's writing. There's a huge Catholic, Irish, and Italian immigration going on at this point right, in time. right. And so there, you know, Wasp Protestant America is very frightened by this, and he is one of the, in the vanguard of this. So he's basically, you know, trying to say that, you know, by having these people come in, we're potentially allowing papist takeover of America and a throwback to that bottom level of society, you know, that, that Comte talked about right. at the theological level. So, you know, that's part of his motivation, certainly. And then Andrew White was no great scholar either, even though he heavily footnoted his work, uh, you know, he doesn't win too many awards for uh, scientific accuracy, does he, or historical accuracy? Let's put it that way. Cer- certainly not on this subject. He was he was as, as opposed to Draper, who was a chemist. At least White was a historian, but he it, it, certainly in this topic he was way way off, and everyone really recognizes it. But uh, he had again a, another hidden agenda. He wrote two books. One was called The Warfare of Science in 1876, and then 20 years later he wrote another one uh, which is called A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom. 
And his main motivation was he was the first president of Cornell University. And now, Cornell, for those who don't know, was the first university in America to be founded without a religious affiliation. Mm. It was it, it had, prior to that most you know, most universities, you know, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, they all started off as seminaries, and Cornell was established as a secular university, and he took a lot of criticism. For doing this, for taking, for, for, you know, founding, helping to found this school. And so his strategy for dealing with this was basically to try to demonstrate that it was necessary because religion had always been holding back uh-huh. scientific and intellectual progress, you know. But he, again, like you said, even though he heavily footnotes his, when you look at, when you actually, as a historian, you should always check into other historians' sources. And, you know, when you actually look into his sources, you're like, what What was he thinking? Right. You know, they, they didn't quite match up with what he was claiming they said. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, even then, it's like, for instance, well, he's first off, he's almost single-handedly responsible for, for inflicting this myth that Columbus was arguing against a flat earth with right. the church. Well, let's uh, let's hang on to that for a second. We'll get into that. Sure. If, you're just, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and we're talking with apologist John Comforti on the topic of is there a war between science and Christianity? So, John, there were a lot of these myths that were put out. Uh, I know when Kirk and I were debating some atheists uh, a couple of years back, they brought up the fact that supposedly Christians burned the Library of Alexandria. No, the Romans burned the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> yes, but but you know, uh, never let a good story go to waste, right? When mm-hmm. it's helpful to your cause. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. And this is one of the things that happened was you know the atheists would pick up on a lot of this uh, anti-Catholic um, information that was coming from you know extremist Protestants uh, mm-hmm. and and use it. Um, you know, uh, I don't know who specifically coined the term, but around this time, somebody coined the term the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's that whole um, myth, right, that the Middle Ages right. were, were a, a, a time of, of a lack of information. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the Flat Earth. Um, mm-hmm. I think you you briefly mentioned about the, the Pope um, – you know, suppressing science, and we talked about that certainly with the Galileo thing mm-hmm. two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But also, there's this rumor that the that the Pope tried to suppress the number zero, right? Even the, the number zero is not good enough, <laughs> right? Uh huh. I actually I haven't heard, I haven't heard that one, but um, oh yeah, that was along I, yeah with the cadaver thing. <laughs> so. Okay, yeah. Well, certainly, yeah. I know what the cadavers. Um, most people don't realize that you know, truthfully, that was a holdover from the ancient pagan beliefs uh, that there were spirits in the body and everything and that you could not if you dissected them you let the spirits out and you know that that, that they would in, you know possibly infect the family and things of that sort and there was a distaste for it you know that uh, people didn't want their bodies cut up after you know after they died uh, but the church never had a prohibition against that in fact it was Christian medical schools in the Middle Ages that made it first made it a requirement of their medical students to have performed a certain number of autopsies and dissections before they would graduate. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was Christian medical schools that were the first ones to allow this to actually do this. Uh, the, the Roman physician Galen had to dissect monkeys and dogs and stuff because it was forbidden under pagan Roman practice. But the, the Christians, you know, they realized a dead body is a dead body and – you know, they said, you know, go ahead if it aids scientific progress. So there's a, a perfect case in point where the Christian church actually was, was fully endorsing right. 
you know, scientific progress and making it possible, uh, facilitating it. So in the medieval um, dark ages, mm. did people really believe that the earth was flat, that if you sailed off on a ship far enough, you would fall off the edge? Oh, maybe it's like, you know, a peasant out in the field working on a farm who's uneducated, he might have. But in the certainly in the university and in the monasteries, the educated populace, no, no, no one had believed that since ancient times. The ancient Greeks figured out that it was round. That's exactly right. I, I It's interesting. One of my first philosophy uh, classes I took at a Christian uh, college and my philosophy professor was talking about the ancient belief in a flat earth and – I said, you know, I, I'm surprised that at a Christian university you would say this. I mean, think about uh, Dante's Inferno, right? Mm-hmm. Written in mm-hmm. the Middle Ages, and Dante describes the earth. He talks about the circle of the earth, and he talks about uh, uh, Jerusalem and different cities around the world, and the and the fact that the uh, you know is morning in one place and noon in another place and mm-hmm. you know, all at the same time they were completely familiar with the earth as a globe so mm-hmm. why then um, let me uh, I'm not sure if you got into this in your research can you answer the question then so that someone might object the atheist will object well then why wouldn't they let um, Columbus. Columbus why wouldn't they let Columbus sail around the world Well, there was a great debate at Salamanca uh, where Columbus was trying to put forward his case. What Columbus had, what they had, what what they had at issue was the size of the Earth. That is correct. Okay, and what the the people in the university said was that the size, the the Earth is in is twenty twenty five thousand miles around or whatever and the the ocean sea is enormous you can't get across it it's right. you know it's 20,000 miles across there's no way that you could do it that's right because you simply couldn't put enough fresh water and food into a ship and sail it around the world you would certainly not those days no that's right that's right you so and of course that was what was happening to Columbus and his crew just before they arrived they were about to mutiny because they knew they were running out of water exactly they were they were running out of everything and yep. you know and he was actually lying to them about how much progress they were making how far they were getting because right. they, they they were worried about you know were they passing a point of no return and but that was what the debate at Salamanca was about because Columbus was saying, no, the world is much smaller and that you can get to the Far East. That's right. And it, tur- and it turns out they were both wrong, fortunately for Columbus and his men. They were both wrong in the- because the- – I mean the-, the-, the church university people were right in that the world was big. Right. Uh, but Columbus was right in that the, the-, the intervening ocean was small but be- – not because Asia was there, but because America was stuck in the middle there. I know they not neither of them realized that there was this big honking carcat continent right in the middle. And That's right. you know, so if but Columbus, if that hadn't been true, he, Columbus would have been a dead guy. Right, right. So so Columbus was a fantastic navigator, but he was a lousy mathematician when it came to mm-hmm. measuring spheres. <laughs> right, right. Because so, um, you, you know. know and uh, people should remember um, just how obvious it was, was and it would have been to uh, the average uh, dark ages uh, person that the earth is round. You know, they did have ships. Ships did sail out of sight, right? They did. Right. They were aware of the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, any person could look around um then go up on a mountain and see that they could see it much further because they were, they were looking at the sphere, how the earth was curved. It was painfully obvious to anyone um, besides what you mentioned of the fact that the Greeks had actually measured it um, right. using the sun and shadows and et cetera. Right, which which so. was actually pretty – I mean considering what the Greeks had to work with, I mean they they're pretty – yeah, they were good, very dead, good, dead, good, dead, dead reckoning that they came up with. And the thing is, White's source for this. Okay, we talk about his footnotes. His source for this 
Yeah. Is Washington Irving's novel That's or short story on Christopher Columbus? I mean, he's citing a, a piece of fiction as a historical source, and he does this like with Roger Bacon's another one. He uh, he talks about you know Roger Bacon, who was uh, sort of a proto scientist in the Middle Ages, being imprisoned because of his uh, scientific work, which again is not true, completely not true, and he talks about you know. People, you know, the, the, the priests wanting to burn him at the stake and everything like that. And his source for this, you look up his, his, his footnote, his source for this is a 16th century stage play about the life of Bacon, <laughs> written 300 years after the fact. Right. You know, so these are the kind of, these are the kind of sources that he's using. All right. And, and you know, Irving himself, uh, as far as I can tell, was another one of these anti-Catholic, uh, Protestants who mm-hmm. wrote about Columbus and wanted to just make the Catholic Church look bad. Right. So, right. and then guys, atheists like uh, Thomas Huxley, whose, you know, main purpose in life was to promote, uh, Darwinism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, glommed onto this and promoted, uh, this idea of the Dark Ages, uh, also. Right. And, and again, in this whole mix is this need to create a myth of science as religion. Right. Okay. And, and this story then becomes replete with battles and martyrs and saints and creeds. And you've got this whole, you know, they successfully create this myth of you know, this great war that's been going on with, you know, science bursting forth into society as the great torch, you know, bearer. And it's just a complete and total fabrication. It's just not true. Uh, so so let's talk now then about um, the true source of science. And if, if the Christian church has not been the enemy of science and uh, has not been suppressing it. The Middle Ages were not dark. Um, Christians mm-hmm. didn't burn the library of Alexandria. They didn't believe in a flat earth. Uh, they, you know, started the universities, etc. What mm-hmm. is, what is, where did scientific, where did the modern scientific um, endeavor come from? All right. Well, first off, most, most people see science and technology as a, a result of the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment. And that, again, is also not the case. Mm. Uh, by the end of the 14th century, the West was already the leader in science and technology in the world. Right. It, it actually has its roots back in those quote-unquote dark ages in the 7th and 8th centuries when you start to develop, see developments in farm technologies, principally initially, um, coming out of the Christian monasteries, mm-hmm. and you see the inline tandem harness, the horse collar, the horseshoe, and you, you cannot imagine how much these technologies, we look at them as simple technologies today. I mean, the horseshoe, I mean, how simple can you get? But it increased the life of your horse two, three, four times through, you know, because prior to that, in ancient times, you had a whole bunch of, you know, gimpy horses walking around, you know, that were, you know, two or three years old. But now you put a good horseshoe on them and they could live, you know, and and be productive for 10 years, 12 years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and these things come out of the Christian monasteries, and unlike, you see, unlike most other societies, I mean, ancient cultures, as a broad statement, okay, from ancient Greece to ancient India to ancient China, if you were part of the upper classes, you did not work with your hands. There was a huge snobbery against working with your hands. Mm-hmm. And... Any sort of fun little technologies, you know, for instance, mechanical clockworks were first to be found in India, but they never really did anything with them because they were just used as like playthings for the for the wealthy, you know. To and you find those kind of things in Islam in in India, they'll run their their fancy gardens or they'll be used as a toy or something for the rich. In Christianity, because every man was seen as valuable, it was actually seen as demeaning if a human being, any human being, 
was to do work that an animal or nature itself could do, a stream, water power, or wind power could do, then it was demeaning to a, to the image of God to have a human being doing that work. And so, you know, whereas before you might have a whole bunch of slaves doing a particular job, now you develop technologies and these monks in these monasteries develop them because they're the ones that are educated. They have engineering skill and they share them with the surrounding communities. That had right. never happened before. That That's unique in the Christian world. And so right. the, these... The monasteries were in a sense a, a prototype of the university. And and even then, the, the the medieval universities and even into the Renaissance, they, they went especially when they began to go into this Aristotelian and Platonic phase. Yeah. They began to develop this sort of snobbery, and they and they would teach mainly the humanities, and they didn't want to teach technology as much. And so you don't see technology really coming out of the universities as much as you do out of these monasteries, where which are which are living in a community setting you know the university has its sort of insular and even today you'll, you'll find this you know academia tends to be a little insular uh whereas the 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 monasteries, contrary to what most people think, you know, monasteries are like retreat, retreats where, you know, the monks just shut themselves behind walls. That's not really true. Certainly for the, for the medieval monastery, they lived in community with, you know, they owned a lot of land around the monastery and they had peasants working that land and they wanted those peasants to be productive. And so they shared these, these technologies that they developed with the community. So, John, so who is trying to set the record straight? Is it just Christians out there that say, that are saying, no, 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 we're not really anti-science? Or are there historians out there who are trying to correct uh, some of this misinformation that we're talking about? Well, first and foremost, you will, you will not find a single historian or philosopher of science. And that's a specialty on its own. You know, most people don't realize, you know, the study of the history of science is a specialty, is a special, you know, specialization of its own. You will not find a single historian of science today that will adhere to this warfare thesis, this idea that, you know, religion and science are at war. Um, it hasn't been defended since, well, at least the 1950s. Uh, what you will find, though, is, is it still in the rank and file historian, uh, Community, you will still find it's still get it still gets regurgitated there sometimes. Right, uh, so some it of the non non specialists. Right, and so the word is still sort of eking out into that community, and it's certainly in the popular and the scientific community. I mean, people are certainly familiar, probably familiar with um, uh, uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Uh, who ironically was a professor at White's Cornell University, um, and he regurgitated this whole thing in that in that book, and he was a great right. proponent, and and you know, uh, and even Stephen Hawking, so that, you know, per, um, regurgitated some of this in his brief history of time. So it's the atheists, mm -hmm. uh, scientists who are not historians who mm -hmm. continue to report this, but. But actually, modern historians um, have – Of the subject. Of the subject have for decades said that it was Christianity that was the genesis for – uh, science and the scientific method. So I, you know, I'll refer people to the soul of science that, uh, was written by Nancy Piercy and Charles Thaxton. The subtitle mm -hmm. is Christian Faith and Natural Philosophy. And then we talked about on the show when it came out last year, there was a, a major a PhD historian from Cambridge. Uh, who also has a degree from Oxford, who in uh, 2011 wrote The Genesis of Science, and the subtitle is How the Christian Middle Ages Launched the Scientific Revolution. And now, okay, so that's two books. Well, I can add just off the top of my head the books of historian Rodney Stark. Um, but actually, if you want to research this, it's there are dozens and dozens of 
PhD qualified historians, professors who write on this topic, who mm -hmm. say that it was Christianity that uh, started the scientific revolution. And even, I, even some of those historians in the field who do not like Christianity and technology. Right. I would point you to the, to the works of, for instance, Len White Jr. Um, who I believe just recently passed away. He, but in the 70s, he uh, was well known as one of the founders of the modern green movement. And he was a avid opponent to technology and what, uh, and the, and he blamed Christianity for bringing tech, modern technology into the oh. Western world. Exactly. And, yeah. And so, you know, I could, he, he wrote a, a groundbreaking article in Science Magazine where uh, he advocated a move to pantheism because that was more ecologically responsible than Christianity. But he specifically said, you know, how modern science and technology were uh, the invention of Christianity. Not, you know, they, there's an old saying, you know, necessity is the mother invention. And he said that's not true. He said Christianity is the mother of invention. And uh, he said, you know, in a culture that, well, you know, well, and it's because you said that in a culture that devalues certain human beings, such as uh, women, uh, people of different colors, whatever, if you need backbreaking work done, such as like harvesting grain, uh, you just go out and buy more slaves or you just marry more women and they are too weak either physically or in the eyes of society. They don't have rights and, you know, they can't say no. Right. But – in, but Christianity removed those human conveniences. You know, women were no longer just property. You could, and slavery, most people don't realize, the, 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 uh, slavery in the American South was an anomaly, uh, up until the 19th century. Mm. Uh, slavery pretty much in Europe had been wiped out by the seventh century by the Christian church. Right, right. And, and so this made automation necessary because you couldn't just go buy more slaves, you know, and you couldn't marry more women. Right? Even if women were, because people will throw up and say, well, women were considered chattel. Yes, but you could only marry one, right, you know. Right. So, Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm speaking with apologist John Conforti about the supposed war between Christianity and science. So, John, we were just talking about how women were used as workers, and I think that people don't realize how true this was, um, but if you read Columbus's logs and his writings about his discovery of America, he talks about the practices of the early Indians that they were finding, and this really was the case. The men in the tribes did hardly anything. They would do some hunting. They mm -hmm. would do some fishing. But the rest of the time, they just lazed around because they had the women doing everything else. The women mm -hmm. did all the farming. The women did all the making of clothing. The women did all the making of housing. The women did all the preparation of food. And on and on it goes. So the men, you know, work, work for a couple of hours, you know, go and hunt, you know, get a deer, go and fish a little bit. And then the rest of the day, they were lazing around and that was it. Uh, other than that, they would just start wars with the next tribe to try to get some more women mm -hmm. so that they could have an even easier time. Yep. And you will find this pretty much throughout the ancient world. The ancient Jews were the anomaly in this. Right. Uh, because they, oh man, they provided one day off in seven for everyone, even wives and servants. I mean, that was just, you, you know, your, your wife got, even got the day off, you know, and, mm -hmm. and slaves and everyone. And, well, again, what most people don't realize is that they required a manual labor trade training even for the highest, most learned rabbi. For instance, Paul was, you know, was a tent maker, right? You had to 
you know, train as, uh, you know, Jesus was a carpenter. You know, so even if you were a highly trained rabbi, you still had to have a, a, a trade that you had to learn. And you would never find, for instance, uh, a, a Brahmin guru in, in India sewing a tent. Okay, that was untouchable work, you know. Right. And it ends and it ends up being Paul that eventually commands those who will not work shall not eat. So that becomes a, a Christ, part of the Christian ethic that you know work is close to godliness, toil is a curse. Right. And so and, there, you know, lies the 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 the, the impetus toward mechanization. Right. So, and you see this in, for instance, the medieval work called Presper John which was mm-hmm. about the glory of the worker the farmer mm-hmm. you know and how he was an image of god uh working and you and you see this throughout so um before we we're, we're starting to get towards the end of the show so i don't want to miss though the question of why wasn't there science in other cultures? Now, of course, there was technology in other cultures. You know, the Chinese had gunpowder, and you mentioned mm-hmm. the mechanical uh, toys and and ingenious contraptions that they made. But mm-hmm. um, let's let's talk about that a little more in depth. Why not other cultures? Why why didn't somebody else come up with the scientific method? Well, uh, because most of these, all of these philosophies at some point in time had a, a reason for collapsing the scientific enterprise. For instance, you go to pagan pre-Christian Europe and everything had a spirit or a god in it, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, so yes. if you're, if you're going to dam up a brook in order to use its harness, the power of that brook or that river – you're going to really make that that brook's little god angry and so you do, you don't want to do that you know those so there's gods, there's yeah those gods were a little bit capricious yes they were a little unpredictable mhm and they will and even if you you know give them a sacrifice they're liable to come after you mm-hmm. you know so it, so you had that and then even those philosophers you know socrates and plato who weren't necessarily uh all that you know, big on the gods. Right. Uh, the the philosophical enterprise in Greece fell apart when you had the sophists come along and demonstrate that you can argue both sides of any issue. And so, you know, there really isn't any truth out there. There isn't any, uh, you know, ground to believing that there's anything out there to. Uh, to, to really understand and believe in, and so therefore, after Aristotle, even though Aristotle, you know, got, got gave Greece and the Western world a good start on right. on Logic a good scientific and, method, yep, yep, it, it fell apart because you know they they could argue well that you know that's not a reasonable way to know anything, and so you know it fell apart, and then you move over into uh, say India into Hinduism, and in India, you've got this whole belief, well, first of the Christian view of God versus the Hindu view of God is vastly different. In, in, um, in Hinduism, the gods are seen in the sense of the dancer and the dance, whereas in Christianity, it's more the painter and the painting. Okay, so so uh, the relationship is very different. Okay, right. so God is transcendent in Christianity, and He's created a a, a a logical, rational universe. Whereas in Hinduism, the God is in the the universe again. He's he's actually part of the trees. He's part of the ground, right. and you don't want to go messing with him. Okay, so there's that that aspect of it, and part of also that we're made in God's image, and as God has breathed into us, we too are transcendent in some way. So we can therefore invent, we can create flowers and animals and chemicals through crossbreeding and refining and other techniques. So we have that aspect of God in us. That's a gift from God that you don't find. You won't find that in pantheistic traditions. Right. right? Then uh, go ahead. Then you've got the whole issue of Maya, and that is the idea that the external world in Hinduism is complete illusion. 
Right. Which violates the first presupposition of science, and that is that there's a real world out there for us to examine. Right. And so if you, if, if you believe that the whole world is an illusion, why would you develop scientific inquiry? Absolutely. You know? You know? Another thing that was a stymied science a lot was the view of history itself. In many cultures, history was seen as cyclical. Mm-hmm. So what goes around comes around. So change would occur, but never any lasting change. There would never be any true progress to be made because you'd always be coming back again, like as the seasons came around over and over again. So there really wasn't any point there. But Christianity came along and said, no, there's a linearity to history. History is going somewhere. We can make progress. We don't have to come back to where we are now. Um, so, uh, so all these things that you mentioned, and several others. In fact, some of them are mentioned in this book, The Soul of Science. All of these principles together, which which are found only in Christianity, or at least all of them together are found only in Christianity, uh, laid the groundwork so that a, a man like uh, uh, Sir Francis Bacon could come along and say, you know, this is the way we ought to be examining things. Um, right. I, I think and- of the book um, Utopia. Um, now, Thomas More wrote this back in 1516. So this is at the verge of the scientific revolution and he, now this is a fictional work, but he describes the utopians as being very science oriented. They wanted to learn. Why mm-hmm. did they want to learn? Because they wanted to examine God's creation. They wanted to see right. how God did things and it's exactly what you were talking about. Um, right. so, you know, this and, is a fictional work, and, but he was really describing the way scientists were thinking back then. They wanted right, to but, follow God's, I think it was Kepler, said they wanted to follow God's thoughts after him. Right. But understanding the nature of that change as being lawful is also what kept, is, is, is also different, say, between Islam. Okay. Because Islam in the 11th and 12th centuries, again, people very well know that, you know, Islam got off to a good start and preserved right. the, you know, but in the 11th and 12th centuries, it began to be seen that no, every Every specific act, whether it's a cotton ball burning in a fire or a bird flying or whatever, is a specific supernatural act of Allah, right. and you cannot write a natural law that, that, that constricts him in his actions. And therefore, again, the scientific enterprise completely collapsed because right. y- if you can't make predictions, you haven't got science. Right. And they that's became, why – Right. They became very fatalistic. Everything mm-hmm. is done by God. Yep. And so uh, essentially then what's the point then? Now there's this interesting – so we've got all these things coming up. We've got this um, – we've got the technology. So the, so Middle Ages, they had great technology. They had um, eyeglasses. They had clocks. Um, they, uh, the plow. You know, um, all these things that were developing. Now that's not all that different from the technology, you know, the gunpowder, the Chinese or the um, – uh, you know, some of the Muslim sciences, but there was this one thing that needed to be broken, and that was actually the bondage of Aristotle. So mm-hmm. Aristotle um, really taught um, that you learned things deductively, that you just thought a priori and you figured things out. And you they had this system, the apprenticeship system. So if there was someone, you know, uh, we, you can read the works um, of, um, oh my goodness, the famous physician, one of the um, earliest Greek physicians. Ah, I can't think of his name. Well, anyway, uh, that the creed, um, Hippocrates. Hippocrates, yes. So, so uh, you know, in the way that, that a trade like medicine, you know, or other these technologies were passed on was through apprenticeship. So you had the expert and then he taught the student and that's, you know, that was the way knowledge was passed down. So mm-hmm. there had to be a break with that and, it, and I believe the uh, Reformation was that – big break because it the reformation questioned authority 
Right. And the moment that you say, no, we're going to question authority. I'm not going to listen to Aristotle as the expert. I'm not right. going to listen to uh, you, the priest, as the expert. I believe God is the only authority. So right. uh, then that opens things up now for us to actually look. If I'm not going to trust the authority, the so-called authority, now we have broken that apprenticeship position and you have godly men like Francis Bacon who can explain the experimental, uh, the scientific experimental method where you use induction instead of deduction to examine um, the evidence and that's how you begin to make progress. You actually see how did God actually do things and not just uh, you know that that's the way God did things because your authority told you so. Right, and it becomes more about finding out new knowledge than just preserving old knowledge. Right. And so, you know, carrying on old traditions as, you know, you, as opposed to, you know, finding out new things about the world. And I think that's why with the printing press and the Reformation, you have two of the main ingredients that allow science to flower after the Reformation, but make no mistake, prior to that, the Western world was the leader in science and technology long before the Enlightenment. In fact, the Enlightenment is all maybe a topic for another show, but the Enlightenment actually broke down reason and is probably progressively collapsing the scientific enterprise as we speak. Uh, See, that's, a, that's a thing that I think people need to be aware of is that mm -hmm. in these principles, these concepts that are needed to do good science collapse. If there's no more – if Christianity uh, begins to die off and these ideas die off in the culture, there will not be a reason for science anymore. Now, you can still have technology. Again, historically, you can, you know, so, so people will probably still be able to build airplanes, you know, build spaceships, things like that. That's not what I'm saying. But the actual uh, desire and drive to discover, uh, to challenge authority and to uh, look and see how things actually are, that can fade away. People can give that up. They can go back to a cyclical nature of things and everything just goes on and on. So why bother? Um, and, and that may really be uh, some of what we're seeing today with some of the universities um, not really wanting to teach anymore. Uh, they don't they don't really believe that there's a body of knowledge that ought to be taught. Yep. Well, listen, John, we are uh, at the end of the show. Um, I want to um, – Maybe you can tell people where they can find some of your uh, stuff. You have a website? www.eternalanswersministry.org. Okay. We have been talking with John Comforti. Uh, John, thanks for being a guest on Evidence for Faith again. No problem. Thank you. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com and join us again next week for more reasons to believe and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was good!